Welcome to the Moving Beyond Your Tribe, where we dig deep on how to stand out from the crowd by building bridges and breaking free from the comfort zone of colloquialism, industrial language, and jargon to find new words, new thinking, and new approaches to ignite action, mobilize a wider network of ambassadors, create customer loyalty, even in a downturn, and build better internal culture. Hi, I'm your host, Torin. I'm bilingual and throughout my life have straddled two cultures, Norwegian and American. I've worked in 10 different industries spanning 25 countries. I have seen firsthand the power of diverse collaboration to create impact across cultures, countries, and the political divide. On this podcast, we will bring on notable leaders from all walks of life to teach us and provide us tools on how they have moved beyond their comfort zone and create amazing breakthroughs of profit, opportunities, and impact. Now let's get started. So I just want to say welcome to Moving Beyond Your Tribe. I'm really excited to have David Berman Scott again. And this is really the book I really wanted to talk about. I mean, I love Phenocracy, what we talked about last time. And it's been really an influential book for me just to think about how to get people. But this book, I just thought it had such a historical connotation, but yet learning so much from a moment in history, marketing to the moon. So I would say, welcome, David. How are you? Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, that was a super fun book to research and write. And, you know, the, the spark of it came because I was eight years old in 1969 when Apollo 11 went up. And I was absolutely fascinated by the whole Apollo program. Not so much space in general, but the Apollo program. I mean, that was my thing when I was a kid. It was so interesting to me. I followed all the missions and the astronauts were my heroes. And, you know, I, I understood the, you know, just dug into the details about how we got there and so on. It's so interesting to me. But then I kind of lost track of it for a, a good long time, 30 years. And then randomly, I was in a bookstore and I ran across a book about the Apollo program and I was like, wow, I used to be so into the Apollo program. I should pick up this book. So I picked up the book and I read it and I got really into it again. Um, it's like, wow, I, I would really love that stuff. I need to really get into it again. And that led to me becoming involved with something called the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation, which was founded by a bunch of astronauts. So I had a chance to spend time with the guys who went to the moon have met and spent significant time with over half of the men who walked on the moon, you know, literally had dinner sitting next to them kind of thing, shared beers with them at the bar kind of thing, have been to one of them, Alan Bean, to his house, uh, for example. So really dug in. And then that led to me thinking, huh, wonder if I can combine my love of Apollo with, uh, with this idea of writing a book. And that, that was sort of the spark of what we got, got me thinking about how to do a book about the Apollo program. And well, how was it to meet the astronauts? Did it fulfill your childhood dream of seeing them and kind of getting their insights? Yes and no. You know, they were among the most famous people in the world in the 1960s. And Neil Armstrong arguably is probably the most famous person of the 20th century. You know, if you think about the 20th century and who the different personalities are, you know, I don't know how many are more famous than the first human to walk on the moon. And I met, met him twice. 
So I think that on one hand, it was super great to meet them, but on the other hand, at least initially, they can be a little bit standoffish because they've met so many people for, for 50 years and people asking them the same questions and so on. And it can be a little bit frustrating. And so it, it's a challenge. It was a challenge to get to know them a little bit more as people. And that was another reason why deciding that I wanted to write a book about Apollo, but a very different kind of book about Apollo, a book about the marketing and public relations aspects of the Apollo Lunar Program. That was a way to really dig in to being able to spend time with them and have converse, meaningful conversations with them in a different realm. You know, they were very open to talking about that aspect of the program oh, really? because nobody had ever really asked them about it before. Oh, wow. And they were very willing to share stories with me and very willing to give credit to the people in the NASA Public Affairs Department and the people who worked in the contractors that built the spacecraft and worked on the space program. All of the contractors were very important to the uh, marketing of the Apollo program. Yeah. And, and so the astronauts were happy to have those discussions. So I was able to, to have that kind of relationship with them. So, oh, you're the guy who's talking about PR and marketing. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, let's get, let's get together. And then I also learned that as much as you can find out what's interesting to them and talk about those things, the more they're likely to open up rather than, oh my God, does someone else want to ask me about what it's like to walk on the moon? I'm, I don't <laughs> want to answer that question for the 10,000th time. So, so for example, Alan Bean, the fourth man to walk on the moon is part of Apollo 12. After he retired from NASA, he became an artist. Really? What kind of an artist? An oil painter. Oh, wow. And so he became the only artist who has ever set foot on the surface of another planet, you know, our moon. And his art mainly focused on drawing, of painting images of what it felt like to be on the moon. So rather than say, talking about here's what it's like on the moon. He painted oil paintings of what it felt like to be on the moon. And I found that concept really interesting and really compelling. So I started to talk with him about art. And my wife, Yukari, is an artist. She's a she, beautiful artist, uh, amateur artist. And so she got interested in speaking with Alan Bean about his art. And we got to the point where we actually commissioned a work from Alan. Oh, wow. And unfortunately, has since passed away. But at the time, this would have been about 10 years ago, a little bit more than 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, he had a three-year waiting list to get a commission. And so we got on the list and we got to the end. We got to the end of the list. It was our turn. And it was great because we talked with him every week on the phone about the painting he was making. He would ask us questions about little aspects of it. And hey, and and he said, one of the things about the moon is everything is black and white. It's, you know, it's black and white and gray. It's the moon. <laughs> wow, he, that's interesting. He, but he paints the moon in color. Oh, and wow. so he called us up one day and said, David, Yukari, it's Alan Bean here. I'm thinking about putting purple into the moon. What do you think about that? I'm thinking purple is <laughs> the right color for our moon. And I Go for it, Alan, whatever you think, you're the artist. But so from that perspective, it became an interesting conversation because 
we were talking about the moon, a place right. where he and only 11 other people besides him have been. Right. But it wasn't from the perspective of what is it like to walk on the moon, Alan, which he doesn't want to answer again because so many people have asked, but rather, how do I interpret what the moon felt to me wow. for this particular couple who's commissioned this work for me? Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. So when you look back at, on the people, and I thought it was interesting because there's like so many people behind the scenes that really created the marketing and getting people and Americans involved in it. Could you tell us a little bit about those people like Paul Haney, Walter Bonney? Because it seemed like they were really setting up the branding of the moon and kind of setting the stage for it. Or if you could just give us a little bit of that kind of reflection on that. Well, you know, what's interesting about it, which the reason it became such a fascinating topic to me is that we spent something like 2% of our national budget for an entire decade in order to do the Apollo Lunar Program. So throughout the 1960s and very early 1970s, it was a huge portion of the United States government's budget to fund this program. And so the question is, how did the American people get convinced that spending that kind of money, those hundreds of millions of dollars and billions over the course of the program, why was that worth the effort? And should we be actually funding it? Because if the American people hadn't been behind the, the program, they would have said, no, we're not going to fund that and voted the Congress people out of office who voted for it. And so it was a very important thing to get the public behind the program. And they had a number of different ways that they did that. And the people who worked in public affairs in NASA had to be very clever about how they were going to portray this program and what were some of the elements of how they were going to, you know, in quote, sell it to the American people. And one of the things that they did that was really important, they did this very, very early on in the program, was they decided to be an open program. And that's in direct contrast to the Soviet program, the Russian program that was a closed program. So the way that the Russians did it, they basically ran their space program as a secret military operation. And until a spacecraft actually successfully launched, they wouldn't announce anything about it. And then until it landed, they wouldn't say anything about what was going on in the mission. Whereas opposed to the American program, we were as open as we could be about the fact that we've got another mission coming up. This is what we're planning to do here. The astronauts are going to be a part of it. And then throughout the mission, they actually had real-time air-to-ground conversations that were made available to the media. Wow. So, so that you could, you know, the media could be following in real time what was going on with that mission. And so, therefore, when some of the missions were having, you know, some of the missions had problems, like the Gemini flight that David Scott, not me, the other, David Scott, the astronaut, and Neil Armstrong, they had a terrible problem with one of their thrusters and they had to abort the mission after about seven hours. But everyone knew that that was happening in real time. You know, they could have died. And Apollo 13, 
when they had the explosion oh, yeah. on Apollo 13, everyone knew that was happening in real time. They could have died. And that was a tense moment. And the idea that it was an open program was very much in debate. And very smart people from the public affairs department says, no, we said, no, we need to be open. We need to be in contrast to the Russians. We need to be telling the American people what's going on at every step of the way. So it was open, but what do you think about like Disney and all these other components that made? I thought that was a really interesting point because they like Collier's Magazine, they had all these components of creating stories around NASA that I thought was interesting. What do you think about that? Well, that was really early on. That was prior to the first space missions. So, you know, the first Russian satellite went up in 1957. The first Russian human flight was 1961. But prior to those missions, we knew that space was on the horizon. The rocket um, science had developed enough that people knew that the idea of putting a satellite into orbit and potentially putting a human into space was coming. So NASA was very clever in partnering with Walt Disney to get stories about space onto television. And you know, if you've been there, you may remember that in Disneyland and Disney World, they had Tomorrowland. Right. And much of Tomorrowland was about space travel. Collier's Magazine, as you mentioned, ran a multi-issue piece about what it would be like to travel into space. This is well before any satellites had even been put into orbit. So these things started to get the public's imagination about what's possible and kind of paved the way for the possibility that we'll be going to space soon. And here are some of the things to think about. And that got people interested and then when John F. Kennedy in, in 1961 says, said, we're going to put a, a man on the moon in the decade of the 1960s, people had already been primed for that mm. possibility. And the American public at that point at least got behind it. So how do you think about the storytelling around like the branding or how do they, you've had really in-depth knowledge of what they've done. What were some of the things that you really thought they did effective? A few things come to mind that I really thought were extremely clever. The first thing is a general point. The second thing is, is a detailed, nerdy kind of point, but, but it was, was essential. The first one was that they positioned the astronauts as heroes so that people like me, I was in elementary school, we looked up to the astronauts. We wanted to be like them. We wanted to meet them. They were the best of humanity. You know, I didn't look up to sports stars the way I looked up to astronauts. And so, you know, grown men wanted to be like them. Women wanted to date them and kids wanted to be like them when they grow up. And so the astronaut as hero was a, um, was a really interesting aspect of the program. And, you know, there's some negative sides of that because there was a, some qualified African-American astronauts that ended up not being selected. And, you know, until the 1980s, there were no women on the American side, although in 1965, the Russians launched a woman astronaut. So the Russians were f first by two decades to launch a woman into space. Really? Wow. Yeah. Wow. So on one hand, you know, it was 
white bread America, but on the other hand, they did a good job of, of painting the astronauts as heroes. What I think is one of the most fascinating aspects, however, is that the public affairs people pushed really, really, really hard to have live television as soon as they possibly could from the spacecrafts. And during the Mercury program and the Gemini program, the technology wasn't there. They weren't able to do it. But from the Apollo program, they even from right from Apollo 7, they were able to have live television from space. And that was a really big deal for the 1960s to do that. Wow, that is the technology was, was unbelievable to be able to do that because prior to Apollo, there were two types of television. There was television that you would tape and you know, typical manifestation of that was all of the foot, all of the footage from the Vietnam War was taped. And so they would tape something in the field in the Vietnam War. It would get shipped back to New York City and processed and then would be on the news and it would be 48 hours late. Or it could be live, but from the studio in New York or somewhere. And so, like, for example, with live sporting events, there were these huge, huge cameras with these cables that were really thick that snaked through the, the stadiums into a truck. And then the truck, you know, beamed the signals back to New York for processing so they could do live shows remotely. But the technology was these massive size of the cameras and the cables and the broadcast equipment fit in this it was a in a truck mm. so the question is how do you do live television from a spacecraft and nasa said we need to do this and the problem was that the, the engineers and the astronauts initially resisted it the engineers resisted it because they didn't want to have to find the extra the extra weight oh yeah capability right. yeah. to be able to send the um, equipment to space. Now they ended up getting the camera to be down to about, oh, it's about the size of this microphone, the camera. Wow. And they ended up having some of the other equipment that was required. So it got to be about, I think I, I'm going to get rough guess, I forget my numbers, but something like 20 pounds. But that was 20 pounds is a lot to have to make. And, and also the space was a lot to have to budget for. And it was way more when you had to deliver that to the surface of the moon because 20 pounds to the surface of the moon is a huge amount of weight, less so if it's in earth orbit, but bring all the way to the moon is a huge amount of weight. And they pushed and they pushed and they pushed and they got that through. And it was hugely important. And the public affairs people said, the American public paid through their taxes for this program. Ah, we want them to be able to see it live. Wow. And they just said, this is, we have to do this. This is very, very, very important. So, so that's what they did. And it proved to be uh, an essential component of the program. And just one more thing that comes to mind is the images, whether it was the video or the photographs, are all in the public domain. And so that's also a really interesting component of the Apollo program, of the American space program, is that you can go onto NASA's website and you can download the photos. 
And there are rules about using the photos in advertising. You can't, there's, there's rules around it, things you can't do. But for the most part, if you want to use those images, you can. If you want to use the images in a newspaper, you can. If you want to print it off and put a picture on your wall, you can. And they, so, so NASA made all of those images freely available to the public and video images as well. And I think that's, that was a really clever and interesting thing, another sort of aspect of that open program. But with the open program, which I thought was interesting when I was reading your book, was how the astronauts were so tied to exclusive reporting from Life magazine. I mean, it was like, and I remember seeing, I think it was one of the films that you had listed on your website, like just about how public pressure they had to be filmed like that. And having talked to these people firsthand, did they ever mention that, like having their life so open out there? Because they're really like the first Kardashians, if you know, like where everyone's got this microscope on you and you're not really living your own life. Right. So so the public affairs department had a real challenge around this 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 exact issue. And the scientific aspects of the Apollo program were completely open. Any reporter could cover it. You know, as long as you qualified, you would get press credentials and you could go watch the launch and you could, if they were having a press conference, you could go into the press conference and possibly ask questions of the astronauts and so on. So it's a completely public and open and transparent program from the perspective of the science and from the perspective of what goes on in the program in general. However, the astronauts' personal stories were given an exclusive to Life magazine. And it was a bit controversial about that because the other publications say, well, well, that's not fair. Why does Life magazine and not us have the ability to interview the astronauts? Well, that's not true. You can still get the ability to interview the astronauts, just not about their personal story. You can ask them about the mission. You can ask them about how they feel about the mission. But you can't start going into... Tell us about your family. What does your kids feel about you going to the moon? That kind of thing. That was the domain of Life magazine. And that was a really clever move because the astronauts had to do a job and they had to train to do their job. And in order to do that, they had to devote, you know, 50, 60, 70 hours a week. And when they were getting close to their launch, 80 or 90 hours a week to train for their missions. And the last thing they wanted to do was interview with every newspaper, magazine, and television station in the world about their family life. And so the um, NASA press office made it made it clear that we will have opportunities for you to ask questions about the mission and to find out about the science. And you're going to get press releases and you're going to get materials and you're going to get photos, all kinds of things you can use. The astronaut's personal life is off limits. And the way the public were able to, to get access to their personal life was through Life Magazine. And Life Magazine paid a, f- a fee to each astronaut for the exclusive rights to their life story. And the decision to do that went all the way up to John Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, the president. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Because, and John Glenn actually negotiated that with the president. And, and the president agreed that these people, these people are, they're basically... They were all mil- almost all military officers, 
They were making a small amount of money. They were working really, really hard. And the last thing they wanted to get bogged down with is, is hundreds of reporters hounding them for information about their personal lives. So when you talk to the astronauts, did they ever mention anything about like how, how their life, personal life was exposed? Or did you get any insights from that? They were, you know, they were among the most famous people in the world. At right, the time, exactly. In the 1960s. And for the most part, it's not like today where, you know, there's real time news and, you know, someone turn on their cell phone, you film you in real time walking down your driveway. People pretty much respected the those rules of engagement. And, you know, some of the astronauts loved to drink. A lot of them smoked cigarettes. Some of them chased women who weren't their wives. And many of the reporters would party with the astronauts at the bars in Florida near, near the Kennedy Space Center, what's now called Kennedy Space Center. And for the most part, kept quiet about who the astronauts really were as people. They honored that. That wouldn't That's happen nice. today. No, that wouldn't happen today at all. But they knew that this one sometimes drank a little bit too much and that one smoked cigarettes and that one was having an affair and they knew that, but they didn't report that. And so NASA and the members of the media and Life magazine were able to paint a picture of who the astronauts were that presented them to the public in a way that that they were heroes. That's an interesting component. If you're looking at the three top things, like because you're like you're thinking marketing versus public affairs, what aspect do you think of the marketing? Was it effective? Was it the way kind of like GE got involved or like some of the contractors or what were like for instance Tang? I thought it was really interesting. Like Tang was such a tie to the whole space. I like the whole orange drink. Do you have any reflections on that? What I found to be among the most fascinating aspects of how NASA figured out how to get these, get the space program onto the radar of everybody in, in a good way was the public affairs department at NASA was tiny, relatively tiny. It was just a few dozen people. So how does a few dozen people manage to work with literally thousands of members of the media who wanted to report about the Apollo program. And how does a tiny public affairs program uh, department get the amount of massive publicity that NASA ended up getting for Apollo? And the answer was they very much sort of deputized the marketing and public relations teams of all of the contractors that worked on the NASA program. So that was companies like Boeing and Raytheon and North American and Grumman that built the spacecraft. It was companies like IBM and others that worked on the software. It was companies that made like ILC that made the spacesuits. It was Hasselblad that made the cameras that the astronauts used or Omega that made the watches that they wore or Tang the kind of breakfast drink that the astronauts had when they were in space. And all of these companies were super eager to promote the fact that they were a part of the, of the Apollo lunar program. And the marketing people and the public relations people that worked at those contractors 
spent a, an enormous amount of time and effort to publicize that that they're a part of these programs. That proved to be a really valuable tool because now the public affairs department in NASA went from a couple of dozen people to quite literally, you know, I didn't, I wasn't able to count them as too too big a number, but 10, maybe, maybe arguably 10,000 people helping to do marketing for Apollo. When you add up all of the people who worked at those contractors and all of the agencies that were trying to get attention and, you know, the advertising agencies and public relations agencies that were trying to get attention for those contractors and all the the companies that were making the TV commercials that were being broadcast um, by many of those contractors. And so that, that was a really clever way to get way, way more attention than would otherwise have been gotten if it was just the NASA people working on that. Hmm. That's interesting. And we're kind of coming to a close right now. I just wanted to ask you like more reflections on what do you think we can learn from marketing to the moon? Like what are some of the things we can take away? I know I was really impressed with what one of the gentlemen said. It's not a press release, but it's a news release, really looking at content marketing in a more serious way. That was something I really appreciated because I think quality of writing storytelling is really important. But looking from your perspective, what do you think we could draw from marketing to the moon that we could take with us today? I would think there's uh, there's three things that come to mind. The first one being open and honest. And we talked about that in context of being an open program. And when Apollo 13 was in trouble, we, went, we didn't try to hide it. NASA, NASA didn't try to hide it. NASA said, these astronauts might die. This is a very difficult situation. We're doing all we can and we're, we're hoping for the best. So they're open and honest. And you know, some companies these days are not open and honest. So we can learn from that. The second thing that I think was super interesting was that NASA was real-time. And then we talked about that earlier where the air-to-ground communications is instant. Well, not quite instant. There's a couple second delay, but we're able to, you know, the Houston Mission Control is able to talk to the astronauts. And that air-to-ground transportation was made available to the members of the media. So members of the media were learning in real time what was going on. And I think that organizations of all kinds need to understand that today, real time is ubiquitous. You know, Twitter is real time and instant. And when news breaks, it's instant. So many companies are not instant. Many companies will wait and 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 not release news until a couple of days later, until, you know, the lawyers figure it out. So I think the idea of real time is is very, very interesting. And then, you know, you mentioned content marketing, but the idea of creating the kinds of materials that people will be interested in and publishing that or causing that to be published is super fascinating. And from the perspective of NASA, it's this, you know, wide portfolio of tens of thousands of photographs and millions of pages of documentation and diagrams and you know you know they're all reporters and editors had and members of the public too because if you could write away to nasa and say hey i'm interested in the apollo program please send me information nasa would send you that information so the idea of that content proved to be a great way to market and that's still a great way to market 50 years later more than 50 years later Creating content is a fabulous way to get your ideas out there. So those three things come to mind. Okay. And what do you think could reignite interest again 
into markings. I know now Mars is getting some attention, but it seemed like it waned after Apollo 11. Is was it just because there was they were too open, too much information, or what is your reflection on that? Like, how were they not able to keep the interest anymore? I think that's a really fascinating thing. As a last question, so if we're just talking about Apollo, you're right. Apollo 11 was huge, and Apollo 12 through 17, not so huge. <laughs> and the reason was that that was a mistake of NASA, actually, is that really? they fo they focused way too much on the adventure story, the quest, the idea that we are going to conquer the moon, the idea that we are going to be the first, the humans are finally going to land on the moon. Nobody had really thought out what happens on the second time. And wow. We had focused the entire planet on this singular event. And, you know, once Neil Armstrong's feet hit the moon, people saw images of that. And then when they astronauts safely returned, it was kind of over. And had they focused more on understanding what would happen after that initial success, I think they could have been more successful in, get, in generating more interest in the public after Apollo 11. The shuttle was dead boring for me. I mean, some people like the shuttle, but the shuttle to me is just a dump truck going around the moon. I'm sorry, going around the earth right. again and again and again and again and again. It's super boring. I think some of the robotic missions that are happening right now, you mentioned Mars, they're super interested the public is fascinated by Mars. The public is fascinated by the lunar, the, the Martian rovers program. And so I think that's good. And the idea of igniting the interest of the public is around showing things that the public is interested in. I think the public is interested in learning more about Mars. So that's doing well. And I think some of the deep space stuff, some of the images that, that are coming out of the deep space probes are, are also super fascinating. But since the 19... You know, since 1972 is the last, you know, Apollo 17 was the last lunar mission with humans aboard, hasn't been as much around the aspects of human space travel because we haven't really done anything new in a long time. So it's like the whole thing, you got to be new and exciting and you've got to be careful by not putting too much emphasis on one story. That's really, really cool. Well, thank you, David. This is so exciting. I, I really love the book. Uh, we'll put thank that you. in the show notes. If there's anything else you want us to add there, it would be great. The only other thing we didn't mention is that Marketing the Moon was turned into a three-part American Experience miniseries called Chasing the Moon. I served as a consulting producer on that film and worked with the filmmaker Robert Stone to interview some important people for that, including Buzz Aldrin the second man to walk on the moon. Yeah, it was super, super fascinating that my book was turned into a three-part movie. So that's pretty cool. Yes, I forgot to mention because I saw that. <laughs> so I yeah. really liked it. Yeah, it was a very encouraging. Well, we'll put that in the show notes. And Great. thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you happen to like this episode, please share with your friends. And if you're new, please pop on over to your favorite podcast app and subscribe. Leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and how we can improve and make this better or how this has helped you. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode.